Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Those beloved words of John Newton have comforted countless Christians throughout the ages. We are so thankful for God's grace, aren't we? His grace really is amazing and astounding. It is majestic and marvelous. We love to sing about God's grace, receive God's grace, celebrate God's grace. When God's grace is given to us, we respond in joy. But let's just be honest. Sometimes when God's grace is given to somebody else, we respond in jealousy. Just between the two of us, has there ever been a time when you thought God's grace was misplaced? Have you ever thought, God, why did you bless that person with so much favor, so much kindness, so much grace? Has there ever been a time when you thought to yourself that God wasted his grace on him, wasted his grace on her, wasted his grace on them. Because God, if you would have asked us, we could have told you some things about him, and we could have told you some things about her, and we certainly could have told you some things about them. So God, why have you been so gracious to somebody else? This morning I ask you the question, what do you do when God's grace seems unfair? Today we come to our next to last sermon in the summer sermon series entitled Storytime, Parables of Jesus. This morning I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I want to read beginning at Matthew chapter 19 verse 30 through Matthew chapter 20 verse 16. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word as today we consider when grace seems unfair. Please hear the words of Christ, beginning in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, did the very same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. 
The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. May God add to his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Our parable begins with a bracketed proverb. It's a proverb that's at the beginning of our passage and at the end of our passage. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, The first will be last and the last will be first. The very last verse of our passage, chapter 20, verse 16, Jesus reverses the proverb, saying that the last will be first and the first will be last. And regardless of the way you say it, it means the same thing. Whether you say the first will be last, the last will be first, or the last will be first and the first will be last, either way you say it, it simply means that in the kingdom of God, God does not play favorites. He doesn't show partiality. God does not play favoritism with his chosen ones. God does not rank the celestial citizens first, second, third, fourth, and on down the line. In heaven, in God's kingdom, in God's rule and reign, the people who have received salvation, they're not like second graders who are making a mad dash to get first in line for recess. No, if if you are in the kingdom of God, if his rule, his reign has been applied to you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if you have received salvation in Jesus, then there is no partiality. There is no favoritism. So the first will be last and the last will be first. This proverb brackets our parable, which tells us that the reason Jesus told this parable was somehow because of that proverb. So in our story, Jesus just simply says that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who owned a vineyard and he needed some day laborers. That scenario was not uncommon in the first century. Every person listening to the voice of Jesus, they could visualize this scenario quickly. Yes, they knew some landowners who owned vineyards, and in order for the the vineyards to be harvested, they would have to go out and get day laborers. Our story probably takes place in the month of September. Because a vineyard was prepared in the spring, it was pruned in the summer, it was harvested in the early fall. The grapes had to be harvested before the rainy season. So there was much work to be done in a very short amount of time to do it. So in order to harvest the grapes of the vineyard, 
the landowner would have to hire day laborers. And literally, day laborers were minimum wage workers who worked day to day. There was no promise of employment for tomorrow. It was only the promise of employment for today. Everybody knew that. The landowner knew it. The workers knew it. Everybody in the audience understood it. This was just the way it was set up. A Palestinian work day was from the first hour to the twelfth hour. In other words, it was from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so Jesus tells us that the landowner went to the marketplace before sunrise. He chose, he selected, he called out many workers. He told them, I need you to work today in my vineyard. And I promise to gift you a denarius. Now, that was an extremely generous gift. If you were a low-wage earner in the first century, to receive a denarius meant that you were well compensated for that day. In fact, that denarius would cover all your expenses, not just for you, but for your entire household. It has oftentimes been said that a denarius is an honest day's pay for an honest day's work, and that's true. But in order for us to understand it, it would be more applicable to understand it as an honest day's pay for an honest day's work for a middle class or an upper middle class individual. So if we thought about it, in that day, a denarius was given to a Roman soldier. A Roman soldier was well respected. He was well paid. The Roman military was the best military in the entire world in the first century. If you had a Roman soldier that lived in your community, that Roman soldier would be uh, held in high esteem. Uh, He'd be elevated. He would be one who would be looked upon as a leader in the community. He would be one who is well-respected and well-compensated for his work. He would receive a denarius, an honest day's pay for an honest day of work. If we tried to correlate that to our day, uh, it, it may be that... A denarius could symbolize the amount of money that a doctor may receive for a day's worth of work. So let me ask you, would you be willing to go work in a field, a very common job, all day long and receive the same amount of money as what a doctor would make on any given day? I mean, everybody would say, yeah, I'd be willing to do that. I'd be be willing to do that. So that's why the negotiations in this story are extremely brief. In fact, the people that were hired early in that first hour, right before 6 a.m., they went skipping off into the vineyard. They thought to themselves, we hit the jackpot. We are now employed by one of the wealthiest landowners that Palestine has to offer because he is giving us a whole denarius just for working one day in his vineyard. We've worked one day in other people's vineyard and haven't got anything close to a denarius. So this man is extremely generous. Those people that were hired before 6 a.m., they went to the vineyard and they were convinced that they had been well treated. That they were about to receive a denarius for working all day long. They were going to get the same pay that that a Roman soldier would receive. You and I could think of it, they were going to get the same pay as what a doctor would get for a day's worth of work. They thought to themselves, we have definitely hit the jackpot. Jesus said that about the third hour, which would be 9 a.m., the landowner went back to the marketplace 
to select, to choose, to hire more workers in his vineyard. He said to them, I want you to go work in my vineyard and I will give you whatever is right. They went to work not knowing what the compensation was going to be. They went to work based on the reputation of the landowner. They knew that he would do what was right. They understood him to be a person of integrity. They took him at his word. They said, this landowner is a good landowner. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. If he says he's going to do right, he's going to do right. Furthermore, three hours have already come and gone, and nobody's hired us yet. And he comes, and he selects us to work in his vineyard. And if we keep standing here, we're not going to get a better offer. And if we keep standing here, there's no way that doing nothing is going to put any food on the table. Because in the first century, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. Now I realize that for some of us today, that sounds a bit harsh. And I, I realize there are extenuating circumstances. But for some, of the, for some of the ills of our country, I think our culture would do well if we kind of went back to that mentality. That if, if you don't work, you don't eat. Because in the first century, there were no government programs. There were no social services. They understood if you don't work, you ain't going to eat. And so I'm not going to go any further with that. I'll just kind of leave that where it is. But, but, but I think that we may do well if we kind of went back and stopped incentivizing people to not work. But in the first century, you had to work. So these people who were there in the marketplace, they thought, you know what? If we don't take this landowner up on his offer, we may not get another offer all day long. So they went to the vineyard and they worked. The landowner still needed more laborers in his vineyard. So he went out in the sixth hour. That's high noon. He went out in the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. He still found more workers. He selected them. He chose them. He invited them to go work in his vineyard. And they went. Apparently the foreman calculated the number of man hours needed to get the harvest in on this day. And the foreman and the landowner, they're in cahoots. They, they, they know what the other one is thinking all throughout this story. So the foreman probably said to the landowner, I know it's getting late, but we still need more workers. In order to bring the harvest in before evening, we, we need a few more workers. We can't get the job done with the amount of laborers that we currently have. So in the 11th hour, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, one hour before quitting time, the landowner went back to the marketplace. He found individuals standing there. And he said, why have you not been working today? And the answer was not because they were lazy. The answer was, nobody has chosen us. Nobody has hired us. Nobody has selected us. So the landowner said, you go work in my vineyard. I know it's only one hour, but you go work until it's quitting time. And off they went. When evening came, the landowner said to the foreman, it's time for us to pay the wages to all the workers today. In order to do that, I want you to line up the workers with the ones hired last as first in line. And then those 
ultimately they were hired first. I want them last in line. So everybody in the line understood that a person standing in front of them worked less than they did. A person standing behind them worked more than they did. I mean, everybody could see what the landowner was doing. I mean, he was just lining everybody up in in the rightful way in which they were hired, except he put those hired last, he put them first in line, and the ones that were hired first, he put them last in line. I told you that the landowner and the foreman, they knew what the other one was thinking. So the landowner just simply looked at the foreman, and he said, now I want you to pay what I believe to be right. The foreman took out a denarius and gave it to the 11th hour workers. Those who had worked one hour, one stinking hour. They'd only worked 60 minutes. They had not worked long at all. And they received a denarius. Not not a partial denarius, a whole denarius. They received a denarius for working one hour. Now, let me ask you, how many of you would be willing to go work in a field for one hour and get the pay of a doctor for the entire day? Would you just raise your hand? Would you be willing to do that? Everybody would, right? I mean, cha-ching, these people, they just really hit the jackpot, and they received a denarius. I promise that on that day, when Jesus told the story, people in the crowd had a collective gasp. Heads began to swivel. And there was at least one person who shouted out, what you say, Jesus? What you talking about, Jesus? Jesus, did you say that the one that was hired last got an entire denarius? And Jesus said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Now, in that story, if you're in that line, what are you thinking? You look and you say, hey, I know these people, they, they just showed up last. They've only been out here for an hour. And the landowner, if he's going to give them a denarius for an hour's worth of work, then I'm standing here in the back of the line and I've been working 12 hours. I've been working all the live long day. What am I going to receive? 12 denarii. That's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting a dozen denarii. I'm really expecting to be able to take some time off. I'm expecting what am I going to do with all that extra money? I'm beginning to calculate what it's going to be applied to and what I'm going to be able to do and how I'm going to be able to do this and do that. And in in my mind, I'm playing all this out because if that person gets a denarius, then I've got to get 12 denarii. But with each passing person, Everybody received a denarius. Now, if you worked an hour, you were elated. If you worked three hours, you were pretty stoked. You worked three hours and you got a denarius. If you worked half a day, you got a whole denarius. You're excited too. Even if you worked nine hours, right? You were hired at 9 a.m. and you worked until 6 p.m. You, you, you worked for nine hours. You know a normal day's 12 hours and you still get a denarius. You think to yourself, hey, thank you very much. I'll take my denarius and I'll go. Because a denarius was an honest day's pay for an honest day of work for an upper middle class person, somebody like a Roman soldier. The 12-hour day laborers, when they got to the front of the line, 
they held out their hand and the foreman gave them a denarius. And they looked at it and they were not grateful. They began to grumble against who? The landowner. They started grumbling against the landowner, the one who owns everything, the one who hired them, the one who enlisted them, the one who negotiated terms with them. And they begin to grumble against the landowner? You've made us equal to all of them. They showed up late. We have shouldered the brunt of the work we have suffered under the sweltering heat of the Palestinian sun. We've worked all day in your vineyard. And you've made us equal to them. You have given us the same thing you gave them. This is not fair. The owner of the vineyard said, friend, I'm not being unfair with you. Did I not promise you I would give you a denarius if you worked in my vineyard? Well, yes, you did, but were you not excited this morning when you left my presence and went into my vineyard? Did I not see you skipping and holding hands with each other? As you made your way to my vineyard? Yes, but... No, wait. Did you not think me to be generous this morning? When I called you? When I drafted you into service? Did you not think me to be good and gracious this morning? Yes, but I didn't know... Are you telling me that I cannot do with my money what I want to do with my money? Are you simply jealous because I'm generous? You're not jealous because I'm generous to you. You're jealous because you think I'm too generous to others. Take what I told you you would receive and go. Why does Jesus tell us this story? He wants us to know that the first will be last and last will be first. He wants us to know that there is no preferential treatment in the kingdom of God. But Jesus is also teaching us that a spirit of superiority can spring from a jealous heart. I think that Jesus is tying this story to the previous story of Matthew chapter 19. It's that previous story where Jesus has an interaction with the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler walks away because he has great riches. His goods have become his God. His stuff had become his savior. He wasn't willing to sever with his stuff and place Jesus first in his life. And as he's walking away, Jesus does not follow after him. Jesus just simply turns towards his own disciples and he says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. At this, the disciples were shocked. They were flabbergasted because they assumed that 
A sure sign of God's favor, God's blessing were material riches. And this man had an enormous amount of riches. And if Jesus is saying that he can't get in, then, then, then what about all of us? It is Peter who speaks up and Peter voices what everybody else is thinking. And Peter simply says, yeah, what about us? We have been with you since ground zero of your ministry. We've been with you since day one. No one has served you longer than we have. And if that rich man is not going to get into heaven, what about us? We left lucrative fishing businesses. Now, every time I think that Peter says that he left a lucrative fishing business, it always leaves me scratching my head. Because whenever in the New Testament, when you see Peter go fishing, he never catches anything. But in his mind, he must think he has a lucrative fishing business. Jesus, we've given up our business, and some of us have given up cushy IRS jobs because they, we were tax collectors, and we left the office, and we came and followed after you. Jesus, we have left field and fortune and homes. Uh, we've left our families. we left our sons and our daughters. We've left everything to follow after you. Because we live in a fallen world, our thinking has fallen, right? It is tainted with sin. And we think like Simon Peter thought. The longer we serve Jesus, the more we should get from Jesus. Why? Because we've earned it. Why? Because we deserve it. We have served you, Jesus. We've been with you from the very beginning, Jesus. We have been serving you for a long time, all the live long day. And Jesus, if we serve you a long time, we ought to get a lot more from you. If you're going to be gracious to people who just show up and get on the bandwagon at the very end of the time, then you're certainly going to be more gracious to people like us. Jesus, what's in it for us? And Jesus responds to Peter. He says, listen, Peter, i tell you the truth. Anyone who has sacrificed anything for the kingdom of God, homes and fields and sons and daughters and family and fortune, I mean, anybody who's sacrificed anything for the kingdom of God, they'll be paid back a hundred times over. Don't you worry about that, Peter. And Peter, you will receive eternal life. Which, by the way, is the same thing that everyone receives who follows after Jesus, eternal life. So Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I will give you what I would give anybody who would come and follow me, eternal life. This is when Jesus says the first version of the proverb. So the first will be last and the last will be first. Peter, you think you're first, because you've served with me longer. You've been with me since the very first day of ministry. But Peter, in the kingdom of God, in God's economy, the first will be last and the last will be first. Now he told this story. And he reverses the proverb at the very end. But it means the same thing. That the last will be first and the first will be last. I think that when you read the story, I think... Parallels are pretty clear, aren't they? God is the landowner. Jesus is the foreman. We are the workers. The world is the vineyard of God. The evening is the eternal state. 
the denarius? It's eternal life. It, it's, it's what's given from the landowner, God, through the foreman, Jesus Christ. And he gives this denarius, he gives us eternal life, he gives us salvation to everyone who's faithful unto him. Throughout the ages, uh, people have tried to think through this parable and they've said, well, the 12-hour day laborers, those are the Jews. Those are the Jewish people throughout the history and those Jewish believers that were very uh, upfront and, and initial converts of Christ. For they're the ones who have shouldered the brunt of the work. They have suffered greatly under the persecution of the ages because they made much of God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then they've said that while the 12-hour day laborers could be the Jewish believers, that those that came to work at noon or three or even at five o'clock in the afternoon, those, those are those Gentiles. Which, by the way, that's us. I mean, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so that's us. That's, that's the dirty masses. That's the, that's the underbelly of society. We've come in sometime later and we've accepted by faith the salvation that Jesus offers us from God. But you know, Paul says in Romans that whether you're Jew or Gentile, that the Gentiles have been grafted into the same tree. Yeah, the root system of the Jewish people, the covenant, uh, the promises that were given, but the Gentiles have come in, and, and whether you're a believing Jew or a believing Gentile, we're still believers in the same Christ Jesus. Some have compared this parable to the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. They said that the 12-hour day laborer, that's the older brother, he labored in the field. He never left the confines of the family farm. He suffered under the sweltering heat, and he worked for his father. Oh, but that younger son who gathered his wealth and liquidized it and wasted it in frivolous, loose living, eventually he came back. He's like the person that comes back at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 5 o'clock, gets in right before quitting time, and he's welcomed back by the father. In fact, the father throws a party for him. He's extremely gracious and generous. Some have said this story is like the prodigal son story. The 12-hour day laborer, that's the older brother. The 11th hour worker, that's the younger brother who comes back. Still people in our day. People in our day look at this story and they think, you know, the 12-hour day laborer, that's the person who has served God in his church for decades. A pillar of the faith family. Somebody who's been around and served faithfully for decade upon decade. But that 11th hour worker, that 5 o'clock worker, the one who only labors for one hour, gets in right under the wire. That's, that's the person that's the person who has the bedside confession right before death. I mean, in life, he was a hellion. I mean, he raised Cain. He never acted like he loved God. He never served God. He, he lived contrary to the word of God. But right before the end, 
He accepted Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ gave him salvation. We, we tell that man's story as if somehow we're jealous of him. I wonder why. Why would we be jealous of somebody who did not live for the Lord the majority part of his life? We act as if somehow following God faithfully for decade after decade that God has held something out on us. That somehow we've missed out on some fun and some excitement. But is there anybody else in the house who could give testimony that the most thrilling thing of your life is to follow Christ? I mean, the most exhilarating part of your existence is to know Christ and to make him known. I mean, there, there's nothing boring, there's nothing bad, there's nothing terrible about following Jesus for decade after decade because the longer you walk with Jesus, the sweeter he becomes. Oh, but sometimes we speak of that person who gets in right under the wire. We speak as if somehow we're jealous of them. I mean, they really lived it up. They had a lot of fun. I didn't get to have that much fun. I didn't, I didn't get to do all what they did. As if somehow we missed out on that. Whenever you're in a church, there's always, always somebody who's been here longer than you. Always somebody who's been here less than you. There's always somebody who seems to be more committed than you. Always somebody else that seems to be less committed than you. And I don't know about you, but sometimes we size each other up, don't we? I mean, we think about how long somebody's been here and what all they've done and what all they've said and what all they've contributed, their time, their talents, their resources. And sometimes we rank one another, don't we? Well, this person is really, really important to the faith family. This person, well, they just arrived just a couple of months ago. Have you ever been around some church people and you feel a sense of superiority from them? They walk around like they own the place, right? I mean, they put their names on some things. And if their names aren't on some things, then they write them on some things, right? I mean, we all know, hey, that belongs to so-and-so. Because people stamp their area of ministry. They stamp themselves on it. Why? Because we think, you know, the longer I serve God, the more he's got to give me. Why? Because I've earned it. I deserve it. I walk away from this story and I ask myself, Jesus, what are you trying to teach us? And I think here's the big idea. The big idea is that God never breaks his promises. And God is gracious to whomever he chooses. God never breaks his promises. Think, think with me about this. Did the landowner, God, break any promise with any person in this story? The answer is no. In fact, the landowner, God, not only didn't break promises, he was extremely generous to everybody in this story. He was generous to them, right? Even the 12-hour worker, he gave that 12-hour worker an entire denarius, which is far more than what he would have normally received on any other day-working labor job. The landowner was generous. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And he is gracious to whomever he chooses. When I think about this story, um, I realize that when my gaze is vertical, and I'm just looking at God, and I see who God is and what he's done in my life, 
when I realize the salvation that he's given to me and all the ramifications of that. Listen, I may not be all that I ought to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. And God has been so good to me. When my gaze is vertical and I look up to God and I receive his grace, there is joy that erupts from my life. When my gaze begins to get horizontal and I begin to see, wait a minute, God's goodness and his grace and his favor and his kindness being bestowed upon him, being given to her, being granted unto them. I think, wait a minute, God, wait, wait, wait. That grace, look, they don't deserve that. I deserve it more. He doesn't deserve, she doesn't deserve that. Why, why are you wasting your grace there? Why are you misplacing your grace over here? When my gaze gets horizontal, I begin to rank and I begin to compare and contrast and I begin to think, why are you so gracious to him? He doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. God, you're being kind to people who are unkind to me. You're being good to people who are mean to me. You are being benevolent to people who just don't deserve it. God, they don't deserve it. God, he doesn't deserve it. God, she doesn't deserve it. And the answer is, you're right. They don't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. But guess what? I don't deserve it either. Grace is not grace if it can be earned. Grace is not grace if it can be merited. Grace is not grace if it can be deserved. Grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. So God is gracious to us. And as long as my gaze is vertical... I respond in joy. But the moment my gaze becomes horizontal, I begin to compare and contrast and jealousy can spring up from a tainted heart. Maybe I'm the only one in the crowd, but I don't think so. I've known you too long. You've known me too long. I think this is part and parcel with the old sinful human condition. Sometimes grace does seem unfair, doesn't it? But the grace that God's given to you, that's not fair either. Because grace is not based on a merit of fairness. Grace is based on the goodness of God. Jesus tells this story to remind us all, God keeps his promises and he is gracious to whomever he chooses. So the answer is for you and for me to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. You know, it is by grace that I woke up this morning. It is by grace that I have air in my lungs. It is by grace that I have food in my stomach, clothes on my back, and a roof over my head. It is by grace 
that I have a wife who loves me and children who respect me. It is by grace that I have a beautiful congregation to pastor. It is by grace that I'm able to come to church this morning. It is by grace that I have a word from God in my heart, shut up like fire in my bones. It is by grace that God gives me the right to preach. It is by grace that I have the privilege to stand in front of you week in and week out. It is by grace that I've been saved. It is by grace that I've been rescued. It is by grace that I've been called. It is by grace that I've been set apart. It's by grace that God has saved me. And the moment I keep looking at Jesus, I see that amazing grace. How sweet that sound. Because Jesus walked through 42 generations. He stepped out of heaven. He stepped into earth. He was born in a rustic barn. He lived a perfect life. He never did anything wrong. He had a perfect life and a perfect ministry. He called 12 disciples together. They were really 12 rednecks. They turned the world upside down. At the end of a three-year ministry, it is Jesus who was handed over to the religious rulers. They turned him over to the Roman authorities. They led Jesus outside the city of Jerusalem, took him up the skull shaped hill called Golgotha and there Jesus died a criminal's death. Not because he had done anything wrong but because you and I have done everything wrong. Jesus died as our substitute. Jesus died as the grace giver. Jesus died to give us salvation. Jesus died. He took our hell upon himself. In fact, Jesus endured our hell so we could enjoy his heaven. Jesus died on the cross. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a stone in front of it. He stayed there Friday, all day Saturday, even into Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up. Grace got up. That Jesus, the one who personifies peace and forgiveness of God, got up. The dead man began to breathe again. He burst forth from the tomb. He rose and ascended to the heavens with the promise that one day he'll come back and rescue his church. He'll come back and get us either one at a time or many at a time. But Jesus will come because Jesus is gracious. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Is there anybody today who can look to Jesus and say, Jesus has been good to me. When our gaze is vertical and we see and receive and celebrate the grace of God, we respond with joy because God has been good to me. That's what we say. God has been good to me. Oh, but the moment that my gaze turns to the left or to the right off of Jesus, and I begin to see how he's graced somebody else, how he's blessed somebody else, how he handles a situation of a person that has hurt me and harmed me, someone who's not been nice. I begin to look around, and instead of joy, there's jealousy. What's the answer? Fix our eyes on Jesus. When our eyes are on Jesus, that's when we can say with John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet that sound. It really did save a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. This morning, have you trusted, have you trusted in the foreman, 
Jesus Christ? Have you received what he offers? A denarius? Eternal life? There's nothing greater, nothing sweeter, nothing better. Have you received eternal life in Jesus Christ? Today can be the day of salvation. Friend, if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus, you've never acknowledged your sin, your need for the Savior, you've never asked for Jesus to come and to live inside of you and to cleanse you from the inside out, today is a day of enormous grace. Your salvation is possible in Jesus Christ. As soon as we sing about this wonderful Savior, I want you to come forward, take a minister by the hand and say, I need that salvation. But maybe you are saved. You've received your denarius. You've got eternal life. But instead of your gaze being vertical to God, your gaze is left and right, horizontal, looking in front of you, behind you, you're comparing and contrasting, you got a spirit of jealousy. And if that's you, friend, the altar's open. Maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you're praying for yourself. Maybe you're praying for somebody else. Maybe you need to join this church. Maybe God's calling you into ministry. Whatever he is doing, just respond in obedience because God is gracious to you. Because our God never breaks his promises. And he's gracious to whomever he chooses. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. We pray that we'll respond in obedience unto you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.